If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Uh, it's on page 836 in the pew Bibles in front of you if you don't have one. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, consider that our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to have a Bible to take home with you. So page 836 in the pew Bibles, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Well, it doesn't happen often because I'm not uh, what you would call a, a big movie guy, but periodically I'll uh, see a preview or a movie trailer of some sort and, and think, that looks awesome. Uh, I can't wait to go see that when it comes out. Maybe you've had the same experience. Well, imagine that small amount of anticipation that you have and the small amount of time that we actually have to wait for a movie to come out, and consider what it must have been like for all of those throughout history who waited and watched for the coming Messiah, Savior, and King. Thousands of years, people watching, waiting, hoping for the promised one who would rescue his people. Uh, over the last two weeks, we've seen in the book of Mark, we've seen John the baptizer proclaim that this king was actually here, and he began to call for repentance. We saw this king identify with sinners in baptism and get identified as the king of Psalm chapter 2. We saw him anointed with the Holy Spirit we saw him defeat Satan's temptations as the second Adam, as our representative. And all of this was a preview of what would come next. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The two lenses that, that I want us to look through today in this text are these. Number one, the king's message, and number two, the king's men. So number one, the king's message. First, look with me again at verse 14. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Uh, as we've learned the last couple of weeks, Mark, as a writer, as an author, he moves fast. Uh, he moved from John baptizing Jesus to John being arrested in only a few verses. We know from other gospel writers how that happened and about the time frame of when it happened. 
But Mark doesn't include any of that story here. He won't fill us in on, on what, what happened to John that led to his arrest until Mark chapter 6. But we do know that it was about a year between Jesus' baptism, which we talked about last week, and verse 14. We know that during this time, he went to a wedding at Cana. He went south to Jerusalem, where he cleansed the temple. And he sat with a Samaritan woman at a well. All of that and more happened in the year between verse 13 and verse 14 of Mark. While Mark is just giving us a summary of Jesus' life, I want us to stop and consider this. Jesus was baptized and anointed with the Spirit. He was crowned king. God spoke verbally to him from the sky. Then, almost a year elapses before his public ministry starts right here in verse 14. He isn't in a hurry, is he? And Mark tells us almost in kind of a throwaway statement that John was arrested. So I think that what he's wanting us to see is that John is fading into the background of the story, and Jesus is moving front and center. Nothing would have made John the Baptist more proud in this moment. John chapter 3, verse 30, John from his own lips said, He, speaking of Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. We're seeing that happen right here in between two verses. In a quick way, Mark's telling us that's happening. John's in decreasing. Christ is increasing. The main character is here. And now that the main character is on the stage, look again at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. There's that word again, gospel, good news. And notice the language here, gospel of God, gospel of God. It's not man's gospel, as Paul so clearly states in Galatians 1.11. This is a gospel, this is good news of God. God is the author of this good news. He's the originator of this good news. It's the good news of the Father, proclaimed and carried out by the Son, empowered by the Spirit. Why is that important? Well, it's not as if Jesus and God the Father are kind of good cop, bad cop, with, with God the Father as a judgmental tyrant and God the Son as the good news guy. It's not what's happening. No, they're acting in concert with one another. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. Second, notice that this gospel or this good news is proclaimed. We'll get into this a little later on, but I want us to see this. The gospel is good news, and the good news is proclaimed. It's a, a declaration of good news. It's a heralding that something is happening, or about to happen, or has happened. I want us to, to understand this from the beginning this morning. Hear this loud and clear. The gospel is good news. 
not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Understand the difference between these two. Good advice is what you should do. Good news is about something that was done. Think about that. When when someone gives you advice, good or bad, you're, you're usually burdened with something that you should do. Do this and earn that. Do this. Be better. That's what's at the core of many other religions. Advice. But Christianity isn't about advice. It's about news. We're talking about history-making, life-transforming news. Think about the Emancipation Proclamation. That was good news. Abraham Lincoln proclaimed that all persons held as slaves are, and henceforward shall be, free. That's not good advice. That's good news. And it changed people's lives in an instant. That's what this long-awaited king does the moment he starts his ministry. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, what's what's the content of this good news? These first four words of the king in the book, verse 15, look at this. The time is fulfilled. So he's going to give us content of the good news. He says, hey, there's good news. Proclaiming good news. This is the content, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Each of these words is vital. First, the word time. The time. There's two Greek words for time. Kronos and kairos. Kronos refers to just moment by moment, passing of time. That's where we get our word chronological. Kairos, on the other hand, refers to a particular moment in time that's so important that it defines everything that comes after it. In English, it's kind of like the difference between history and historic. Everything that happens day-to-day, moment-by-moment, is history. But not everything is historic. When we say that something's historic, we're saying something so important happened in this moment that it shaped history. That's the idea behind the word kairos. And that's the word Mark uses here for time. This isn't just any old moment that's happening. This isn't Jesus tapping his watch, kind of like a type A dad saying, all right, kids, it's time to get out the door. Hey, it's time. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying this moment, my coming onto the scene, it's historic. Everything has led up to this moment. And everything after this is going to be defined by this moment in time. Even our calendars are based off of the time of Jesus' life. All years before Jesus are known as B.C., or before Christ. And all years after as A.D., or Anno Domine, or Year of Our Lord. Jesus' birth was rightly the dividing line in history. 
Then he says, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. This is another fun word. The word fulfilled is pleroma, which means completely filled. Uh, I love coffee. And more often than not, when I make coffee, I, I use this little thing called a Kalita Wave pour-over. And you, you set it on your cup, and you pour the hot water over the grinds, which then goes into your cup, hopefully. Most of the time, uh, I get a, a big cup that allows all of the coffee to go in. It fills the cup. But sometimes, I'm not paying attention, and I grab just a normal-sized mug. 25 grams of coffee, 400 grams of water is too much for a normal-sized mug. When that happens, around 300 grams or something, the coffee starts overflowing out of the top of that cup. That cup is pleroma. It's super full. That's what Jesus is saying. The time, the historic time, for the arrival of the kingdom of God, it's super full. It's at hand. The king has been coronated and he's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Remember from our study of Joshua, the kingdom of God, how we define the kingdom of God, how the Bible defines the kingdom of God, is God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the, the kingdom of God. Ross preached a, a sermon at the end of last year on how the kingdom is already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. And, and that's exactly right. In many senses, the kingdom is not yet. Jesus himself, in the Lord's prayer, he tells us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. But Jesus is also proclaiming that in him, the kingdom is here. It's a present reality. That movie trailer that you've been anticipating for thousands of years, hoping and praying for, it's here, Jesus says. All of the promises of the Old Testament are being super fulfilled in Christ. Now, so far, all of Jesus' words have been in the indicative mood. They've been statements of truth. But at the end of the verse, we have two imperatives or commands. If, if these indicatives are true, if it's true that, that, that the time has come, time is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is at hand, if the indicatives are true and the long-awaited king has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, there must be a response. So, what are Jesus' imperatives? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. This is at the core of the king's message, the command to repent and believe. Hear this. Jesus' message it is both like John's, John the Baptizer's, it's both like his message, and it's in addition to John's message. 
John the Baptist, we know, called for repentance, a turning from sin. He called for that. But if that's all we have, we're stuck in the burden of the law. If we just turn from sin, you know, we're just never going to fully accomplish that. That's a life of not measuring up. That's a life of toil. That's not good news. It's exhausting and never-ending. But Jesus says something more. Repent and believe. This is good news. Now, we're not only turning from something, but we're turning to something. Or more correctly, to someone. We're turning from our sin and turning to trusting in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection. This is what we mean by belief as Christians. Jesus is the object of our faith. We don't just believe in God like Jesus believed in God. Jesus is the object of our faith. We trust that who he was, what he did, was the only sufficient way for us to be saved from our sin. So repentance, we're turning our hearts, turning our minds, we're physically turning away from sin. Belief, we're trusting that that Jesus dealt with those sins by dying on the cross for them. Both of these crucial to the gospel message. If if we only turn from, we have the law. Law will never save us. Law will never earn God's favor. On the other side, if we only believe without repentance, we have what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called easy believism or cheap grace neither of which is how the Bible talks of faith. True faith is a life of obedience. Read the book of James. He he makes that abundantly clear over and over and over again. Faith without repentance isn't true faith. Martin Luther famously said, salvation is by faith alone, but it's never a faith that is alone. I love that. Thomas Watson One of my my favorite Puritans, he he said that faith and repentance are like two wings of a dove whereby we fly into heaven. He says the two go together. You can't have one without the other. There are loads and loads and loads of people, unfortunately, who claim to be believers, but with no repentance. They go to church, they sing the songs, they grew up in a Christian home, but their lives aren't changed in any way. There's no fruit in their lives and no repentance. A believer without repentance isn't a believer at all. Jesus comes to earth and the first words on on his lips at the beginning of his ministry are these, repent and believe. Repent. You need to be changed. I need to be changed. Our attitudes, our actions, our habits, and our hearts need to be changed. Repent. Believe. 
Trust in the promises of God. Trust in Jesus as your only hope of salvation and eternal life. That's the message of Jesus. That's what he's proclaiming. Abandon all of your self-centered ways and become a royal subject of Christ, the King. Abandon all of your claims to rule your own life and set up your own kingdom. The King calls for us to turn, but he reassures us that we can trust him in belief. If you're not a Christian, that's the, the core of Christianity right there. It's, it's not about what you can do for God, but what, about what God has done for you. Every single person is broken and sinful by nature. And because of that, every single person has sinned in numerous ways. We've rebelled against the creator of the universe. But this king, Jesus He came to earth, lived a a perfect life by nature and by action. He never sinned. He went to the cross and died in the place of sinners, taking the just wrath of God that every single one of us deserve. And he calls us to a decision. He calls us to a response, repentance and faith. To repent and believe. Christianity isn't first and foremost about church attendance or good deeds. It isn't first and foremost about morality and being a better person than the Joneses down the street. It isn't about walking an aisle or saying a prayer. It isn't about looking pious or feeling a feeling. The only proper response to the gospel proclamation is repentance and belief turning from sin and turning to Jesus in faith. The king has already won victory. You can choose to follow him or to oppose him. There's no third option. This is the king's message. Point two, the king's men. The king's men. Jesus proclaims the gospel of God, and he calls for repentance and belief. And then he goes to the sea. Look with me at verses 16 and 20. And I'll just note before we jump in here, the first two groups of of disciples that Jesus Jesus picks are are groups of brothers. Just saying. Look with me at verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. First of all, who were these people? This is important. The text tells us that they were fishermen. 
Now, it can be easy for us to have a view that these guys were just poor. They were fishermen. But they weren't. And this is going to be significant later. They're fishermen in an area where fish was one of the main parts of the economy. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus tells us that the Sea of Galilee was one of the most productive bodies of water in the world in the fishing industry. So think these men were techies living near Silicon Valley. These men most likely had lucrative businesses. In verse 20, we see that James and John even had other employees in their fishing business, along with their dad. So they're not poor, but they're also not spectacular. They're fishermen. They're not the religious elite. They're not the power brokers uh, in society or, or famous in any way. You might think that, that Jesus would come on the scene and call doctors or lawyers or some great rabbis, but he doesn't. He calls fishermen. And this isn't out of the ordinary at all. This is exactly what God always does. He uses the weak to display his strength. Zechariah 4.6 says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1.26-29, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Weakness is a prerequisite for God to use you. That's what Paul's saying. Do you think that, that God can't use you? He changed the world with fishermen. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, the first four, three of which would be his closest disciples. They're fishermen. And he changed the world with them. It's also important to know that this isn't their first interaction with Jesus. While Mark, again, doesn't fill us in, these guys have been around Jesus before, but this interaction is different. What Jesus says here is the basis for all of discipleship, not just for these four, not just for the 12, not just really spiritual people, not just really mature Christians, everyone who has repented and believed. What does he say? First, Follow me. Follow me. Do you get how crazy this is? Understand this. It wasn't unusual for rabbis of Jesus' day to have followers. That wasn't unusual at all. But it never worked like this. How it normally worked was a Jewish boy would pursue a rabbi proving themselves to be worthy of his acceptance. 
Kind of like someone now would pursue going to Harvard or Yale. You turn in your transcript. You tell them how awesome you are. They might accept you. But Jesus shows up and he pursues them, calling them to follow him. There's something different about this Jesus. He pursues us. Again, this is how God always works. Now understand this. If God were waiting for us to pursue him, we'd never do it. God always moves first. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Romans chapter 3 tells us that there's no one who seeks for God. God is the seeker. He comes after us. Maybe he's seeking after you this morning. Maybe you've heard the call from the Lord of the universe to turn and trust in him, even in this sermon. I urge you, I plead with you, listen to him, follow him. It'll change your life. So Jesus calls to them. He pursues them and he says, follow me. Remember, this isn't a desperate rabbi calling fishermen because he can't get anyone else. Remember what Mark just told us. This is Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the Son of God. And he's extending an invitation. Follow me. It'd be like getting an invitation from the White House. I'm sure if you got an email from your favorite president requesting your presence in the Oval Office, you'd clear your schedule. No matter what you had going on, no matter how busy you were, you'd clear it to hop on a plane and get to D.C. Now, imagine that instead of an email invitation, the president just showed up at your work, knocked on your door. And that's just someone who's in power over a country for four to eight years. This is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he says to them, and to you, to me, follow me. And it's at this point that I want to bring back in the notion that these men weren't poor. They had successful businesses that they were running. And Jesus is essentially calling them to leave. You've grown up in the family business. You've watched your dad fish for years. You've learned the craft. You've honed the craft. You're good at it. You're working with your dad. You're making good money. And Jesus shows up and says, follow me. Turn the open for business sign around and close up shop. Follow me. What I want you to, to understand here is that following Jesus always involves sacrifice. This was a big ask that Jesus is making here. Jesus was inviting them to leave the only thing they'd ever known, their source of comfort and income, their family. He was calling them to sacrifice, 
to follow him. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, Jesus makes this point to them explicitly. Luke 9, 23 through 24, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will save it. Jesus was calling them to leave something, and leaving would be a sacrifice. But he was calling them to himself. Over Christmas break, I was talking to, to Shannon's dad, as I often do, and he was telling me, uh, as he often does, stories of the oil field. That's where he works. I love these stories. So uh, this Christmas break, he's telling me this crazy story that, that it had become a regular thing in Midland, Odessa, if you're familiar with the area. It's, it's just rich with oil, lots of, of oil companies there. He, and what it, Marvin told me was that the McDonald's there, it had become a regular thing for the Coke truck to just be left abandoned behind McDonald's. And so he finally goes into McDonald's and says, hey, what's up with every week or so I see an, an abandoned Coke truck back here? What's going on? Well, the, the people at McDonald's told Marvin that this is what was happening. They said, a, a Coke truck will pull up back here, and then some guys from the oil field will run up to the Coke truck and say, hey, leave the Coke truck and get in our car. Come with us. Would you do it? Well, what I didn't tell you is that the oil field offers to triple or even quadruple the Coke driver's wages on the spot to come drive for them. Hear this. Leaving your nets to follow Christ is a sacrifice. You have to leave certain things behind. But leaving your nets to follow Christ isn't a sacrifice at all because you gain the world. Look at the reactions of these four men. Jesus calls them to follow him, and they take a couple of weeks to ponder it. No. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is one of the most famous acts of immediate obedience in history. But look what they gained. These guys went from only knowing the Sea of Galilee to changing the world forever. John became a leader of Ephesus. Peter went to Rome and Andrew to the borders of modern-day Russia. Their hearts and their minds, once captivated by their own interest in fishing, were now full of deep thoughts. Their whole lives were transformed. And even better, their sins were forgiven and paid for. Following Jesus is always a sacrifice. But there's nothing that will make you grow like following Christ. And in so doing, you gain the world. He's worthy. He's worthy of more than periodic church attendance and casual relationship. 
He's worthy of absolute abandonment and all of our worship. He's calling each and every one of us as disciples to follow him. He's calling us to be willing to leave everything for him. He wants priority over your family. He wants priority over your finances. He wants priority over everything. He's calling you to follow him. Will you? The second thing that that Jesus says to these four men and to all would-be disciples is also vital. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. First of all, what does Jesus even mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, when God is described as fishing, it's in the context of judgment. We see this in Jeremiah 16, verses 16 through 18. Jesus isn't hiding this from the disciples. What he's calling them to as his disciples is to rescue men from the judgment of God. They were fishermen. They knew the trade well. When I think about fishing, I think about a single line. Sitting on a boat or a pier, casting a line out with bait on it and waiting. For them, fishing was different. Instead of lines, they fished with nets, as the text tells us. So picture a circular net about 15 feet in diameter with weights on the sides. Rope tied to the middle. They'd cast these nets out and the weights would sink to the bottom hopefully trapping fish. They'd yank the rope, which made the the weights kind of come together and cinch up the net, and then they'd pull them into the boat. So do you see what Jesus is saying to them here? Simon, Andrew, James, John, you're going to rescue people from judgment of God like that. Your business as fishermen wasn't a small thing. But what I'm calling you to is an eternal thing. You're going to leave your nets that'll eventually break and disappear. But you're going to change people's eternal destinies with the net of the gospel. Santa Cruz Baptist Church, that calling and mission is no less real and true for us today as it was for them. If you're a Christian, then you've been called to follow Jesus and you've been commissioned to fish for men and women. I want us to be serious about this. Let's go. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There's urgency here. The just judgment of God is coming. We've been called to fish for men and women to get creative in the casting of the net of the gospel in Santa Cruz County. There's two things that I want to say to us this morning. Two things. Dream big, but think small. Dream big, but think small. First, dream big. Do you know that that the God of the universe is the one who's called you? There's nothing that our God cannot do. 
through our church and the faithful proclamation of the gospel. He could save thousands and thousands of people in this county over the coming years. Dream big, but think small. It's one thing to, to want to save the world. It's another thing to know your neighbors or to go to the same restaurants or, or to frequent the same barber even. I want us to dream and hope and pray big. And this does involve praying big prayers, asking God to do things that only God can do in this county. But I want us to be intentional with specific people, with names. You've heard me mention uh, over the last couple of weeks this idea of who's your one. That's what this is all about. In, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables or stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the prodigal son. In each of these stories, there's something that was lost and then found. One sheep, one coin, one son. In each of the parables, finding the one leads to rejoicing and celebration in heaven. Lost sheep, Luke 15, 6 through 7. It says, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Lost coin, verses 9 through 10. There's this, this widow that's looking for the lost coin, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lost son, verses 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. One sheep, one coin, one son. Who has God called you to be intentional with in this coming year? Dream big, but think small. Who will you be intentional to pray for daily and weekly and monthly? Who will you be intentional to serve? Who will you share the gospel with in hopes of saving them from the coming judgment of God? Who's your one? Who's your one? You know, I'd love it if all of us had a list of three to five people who we were being intentional with. But let's start by committing to one. I want you to actually think about a name. We've got these bookmarks here on the back table. And it's a place where you can list a name of someone that you want to be intentional with and pursue. You can rip that off and put it in the box in the back so that we can be praying for them too. Uh, you also write their name here 
And over the next 30 days, you pray for them using these scripture verses. Um, we got a bunch of these on order that should be here this week. We've got a handful of them back there. Um, over the next 30 days and over the next year, I want us to commit to this in earnest, to be praying for people by name. We're going to dream big, but think small. And this may make you nervous. You may think, I'm not an evangelist. I don't know how to fish for men. I could never do that. Well, here's some encouragement from the text. Look again at verse 17. This is amazing. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus doesn't say, don't follow me unless you're already a fisher of man. He doesn't say, follow me and you better already be a pro at this. He says, I will make you become. Anything that, that Jesus calls you to, he'll provide for. Anything Jesus calls you to, he'll equip you for. Follow him. Obey the call. You may have never shared the gospel before in your life, but Jesus is calling you to step out of the boat, to drop your nets, to follow him and trust him to use you, just like he used the fishermen. He will make you become fishers of men. Do you believe that? King Jesus' message is simple and straightforward. He's calling every single one of us to repent and believe. He's calling us to follow and fish. If you're here today and you've never turned from sin and trusted in King Jesus, we invite you to make this the day. You'll never regret that. He's a good king and a forgiving king. He's merciful and gracious. Repent and believe and you will be saved. Santa Cruz Baptist Church, he's also calling us to follow him, to trust him with everything, to let him make us become fishers of men. Will we follow?